0: So when we think of things that we might be afraid of, what kinds of things come to your mind? I'll mention a few to maybe stimulate your thinking because it might be different from one person to the next. But how about when you think of a Category 4 hurricane overtaking you? Or maybe your family that you kind of feel helpless, like they're down there and you're up here and what else can you do? And you're, you're praying are praying. And then you're waiting for updates. You know, how is it going down there? That can could be a, a real fear. Maybe you think of uh, a terminal diagnosis or a diagnosis that doesn't have a medical treatment. You know, when you have a terminal diagnosis, you maybe have a, you know, they say this many, this many months or this many years, and then your life will be over. That's a terminal diagnosis. But sometimes there are terminal... Conditions that we have and then there's, there's no really knowledge of how that's all going to pan out but there's no solution to it that's a real fear that people could have maybe you have fear as you look at the world economy and you see the inflation just spiraling up and your salary is not matching it so you think man how am I going to make ends meet that could be a real fear that people have. Or maybe you fear the loss of a valuable relationship. Maybe you're a, a child or a spouse, someone dear in your life, and, and you think, I don't want to lose that. And maybe maybe you've even seen the, the, the markers that this thing is already falling off the cliff. There's a real problem here. That, that could be a real fear that could overwhelm us. In Ecclesiastes. Solomon paints a picture of the emptiness that has resulted from his extensive testing. I tried a a lot of this. And I tried a lot of that. And I tried a lot of this too. And what I keep finding is I can't grab onto it. it. I can't make heads or tails out of it. I can't make sense of it. I see it should be, everything should be great. But I go to take a big old bite and I found I've been staring at an air burger. There's no substance to it. His extensive testing has not resulted in freedom, joy, and fulfillment, but the very opposite. As much as Solomon tried to learn, it ended up giving him a knowledge that really caused him more frustration than help. As much as he tried to fill the void that he had in his soul with the pleasures of food and music, parties and women, he describes it as unfulfilling. Look at Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 8. This is a statement. He's making a statement. This is from his. Perspective under the sun. Just in this earthly pilgrimage without reference to God, verse 8, all things are full of, what does it say? Weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. This seems very depressing. All things are full of hollowness, weariness. This is just really pressing down on me. As much as he tried to find meaning through the works of his hands, he still recognized that those works that he worked so hard on that he thinks, yeah, he did a really good job on this. One day it's going to be in the hands of another person, and who knows whether that person's going to take good care of it or not. Maybe they'll just squander it or neglect it. Maybe it'll just be wasted. Maybe he won't be a wise person at all. This seemed very frustrating to him. As much as he knew from his research, as much as he accomplished with his hands, as much as he possessed in wealth and entertainment and relationships, he had a certain amount of fear. He was afraid. He was afraid there was something he could learn that might unlock the mysteries of life. And he hasn't gotten to that one yet. Perhaps if I had just looked harder, I might have found this thing that would have given me this aha moment. He was afraid that there was some other experience that might make him happy. Well, I tried this, that, and the other thing, but what if I had tried this endeavor? Maybe that would have given me some lasting peace and some lasting joy. He was afraid that he was going to miss that. He was afraid that no matter how wisely he lived, there were crooked parts of life that he would not be able to straighten. I'm doing everything that seems to be right to fix this matter, and yet it's still broken. That was a frustration to him, and I think in some way or another it was Something that caused him some fear. He was afraid that maybe somehow he wouldn't measure up. I haven't done enough. I haven't been wise enough. I haven't lived rightly enough. I wouldn't measure up. That his accomplishments wouldn't matter. All the things that he had done, they they wouldn't be enough. He was afraid that no one would remember him. Remember, he says in in one of the sections, at least at least a couple times actually, where there's no lasting remembrance of of these people. There's no lasting remembrance after you're dead. The, the, The whole world is gonna forget you. That seemed frustrating to him. Solomon is not the only one who has experienced fear. Some of our fears are about physical harm. Some of our fears are about being found insignificant. And some of our fears are about missing the best that life has to offer. If you're honest, something in there you've experienced and you've been frustrated by and you might have been clawing after. But what are your fears? These are just some ways to stimulate your thinking. What are your fears? Five times in the book of Ecclesiastes, at least... Solomon calls our attention, every reader calls our attention to fear God. He calls our attention to fear God. Let's take a look at these, please, just briefly. Ecclesiastes 3. We're not going to spend a long time at any one of these spots. Just touch and go. Ecclesiastes 3. Look at verse 14. He says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. You have all these endeavors. You're trying to do this. And sometimes they fall apart right in front of your face, right? It's like, oh, that didn't work out. I had, that didn't turn out the way that I envisioned. I had so many other purposes for what I was planning to do. But when God does something, it's done. It's done right. And no one can undermine it, stop it, change it. It's forever. And why? This is so that you and I can come to understand we're small. We're finite. We're fragile. Your greatest works will not stand the test of time. And every work of God will God is glorious. I is not. He goes on in chapter five and brings it up again. Ecclesiastes 5, look at verse seven. He says, "For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you, what does it say? must fear. He's calling us to fear God. Look at chapter seven. Chapter 7 and verse 18. Well, I'm going to start with a little context. I don't know if Pastor Jeff touched on these verses. These are some mind bending things he says here. Verse 16 Be not overly righteous. <laughs> you didn't expect to hear that at church this morning. <laughs> be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. <laughs> Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The one who fears God shall come out from both the right things that they do, and they'll come out from the stupid things they do. Why? Because the fear of the Lord is us recognizing who He is and saying, "Yeah, what I try will never measure up. I can't measure up. It's about learning who He is. It's about understanding how glorious He is. And so He says, Don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wicked. In other words, don't find your purpose in your righteous deeds, and don't find your satisfaction in these things you're craving after. Neither of them are going to produce what you need, but God can. Look at chapter 8, Ecclesiastes 8. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, though a sinner dies, uh, excuse me, though a sinner does evil a hundred times, times and prolongs his life yet i know that it will be well with those who fear god because they fear before him but it will not be well with the wicked neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before god and so he's bringing this again this fear god fear god look at chapter 12 now he comes to the his conclusion. We're not going to dive deeply into this ending section. If you want a more thorough conversation about this, you can kind of go back into our sermon archives. We went through this back in 2019. You can see the whole series on the Book of Ecclesiastes that we did. Uh, but look at verse 13, Ecclesiastes 12:13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. And keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the end of the matter. Fear God. Fear God. So my question that I think that we want to kind of mull for a few more minutes this morning is this. Is God, through Solomon, giving us something else to be afraid of? As if life wasn't already hard enough. He's told us, I, 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 I'm looking at the things that God has made. I'm looking at the rivers and they're flowing. And it comes from one place and it goes to another. This isn't an empty. That's not full. That's confusing. I look at the things that God has made and every day the sun goes up and it goes down, only to come up again. It's like, eh, yep, okay. This is a little bit... Monotonous here. I don't get it. This is frustrating. I don't don't understand all of this endlessness without resolution. Well, I think rather than figuring out by observing those things, I'm just going to dive into the books. I'm going to study, and I'm going to be the smartest person ever. And he found himself uberly frustrated. Ah! I'm going to dive into every pleasure that I could possibly have eh, after a while it doesn't taste so great anymore It's like the great pirate philosopher Barbosa said it's like ash in my mouth. Remember that from Pirates of the Caribbean It's like oh i can't I can't taste this I can't feel the the foam of the sea on my face I can't I want this apple. There it is. I want to eat it, but I can't taste it. There's nothing there. That's the concept that Solomon came to. He he had indulged himself and frustration resulted. Fear, fear, anxiety, irritation. And now he says, here's the solution to my fears. More fear. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. The fear of the Lord is a common somewhat common expression throughout the Old Testament scriptures and I want for us to think about it for just a few moments to see the benefits and the results of the fear of the Lord. So if you were to try to understand the fear of the Lord in the context of Ecclesiastes what I would how I would say is an immediate clue is he keeps talking about under the sun, right? All these things are frustrating under the sun. The fear of the Lord, fearing God, is taking a look beyond this terrestrial planet and the celestial scene around us. It's beyond the world. It's beyond the sun. It's it's looking above all of the stuff of life. The fear of God is coming to the place of seeing God as magnificently sovereign over everything that is and that ever will be. In the 111th Psalm in verse 10, there's an expression that probably is familiar to you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now Solomon, two other times, used this similar expression. One time in Proverbs 1.7, he said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I think what we're trying to see is the fear of the Lord is the ability now to have true understanding. When we fear God, as Solomon is prescribing, it broadens our understanding of God. Now take a look at the book of Romans chapter 1 for a moment. We've referred to the book of Romans uh, numerous times throughout our study of Ecclesiastes because Paul uses similar words, expressions, and concepts that Solomon does And in his conveying of it, he's providing a lot of the solutions that Solomon only intimates at. But here in Romans chapter 1, Paul is going to talk about how God has revealed a good deal of His power and His wisdom by the things that He has made. And even though they're clear for people to see, Many remain in darkness, blinded without understanding, because they have, in fact, exchanged God's glory that He reveals through what He's made, for the things that God has made. So take a look, beginning at verse 20 of Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one and verse 20, "For His God's." invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly what does it say perceived seen observed ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they those that have observed are without excuse for although they knew god they did not honor him as god or give thanks to him But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became what? Fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man in birds and animals and creeping things. So we see. We see all the things that God has made. Like, For for those of us that that have had our eyes opened to see that God is the Creator of all these things. And we see the changing of the leaves. And then in the spring, we see the budding of those leaves. Right? We see this transition from what looks like death to the dawning of new life. When we say, Lord, this is amazing. Or if we go into the, the delivery room, and that little baby comes out. We say, God, you're amazing. Like, you did this. Like, you, you made life here. You took parts from these two people. You made something new. This is just an amazing thing. We see this. And we say, God, your, your power is astounding. Or we, we look up into the sky and we see the trillions of stars. And we say, God, you're just You're immense. You're glorious. God's power and wisdom and beauty are clearly seen by the things He has made. But so many, instead of seeing Him as glorious through this, their eyes are veiled, their hearts are darkened, their understanding is muted. And therefore, instead of seeing the glory of God in the midst of these things, they say, Look at that wonderful thing. Isn't it nice? I wonder how it got there. Of course, it must have exploded into existence. Whatever um, the case may be, it's, 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 uh, it's, God told us that people were going to perceive it incorrectly. Why? Because our hearts long for other explanations other than a good God who has made these things. On the other hand, when our eyes are opened to see God's glory, we see how awesome He is. God opens our understanding. As we look beyond the stars, we look beyond the sun, we see God as Creator and Sustainer and Savior, Redeemer, One who gives life to all. The the One in whom we live and breathe and have our being. We see that He appoints uh, uh, times and seasons and boundaries of our dwelling places in Acts chapter 17. We see these things. We say, God, You're doing this for all of the billions of people that are on earth in 2022. And You're going to do it for all the people that are on earth in 2023. But you've been doing this since the beginning of it all. You've been caring for and nurturing and providing for people for thousands and thousands of years and caring for them individually. It's like my mind is blown by dealing with my own seven people in my house, right? It's like I can't keep up after all these things. But God is over all of it and he's not stressed. Isn't that glorious? we start to see how wonderful God is when we look beyond the sun. God is changing our foolishness and our rejection of Him and He makes us wise and He gives us faith to believe Him. When God opens our understanding, God is magnified as we see how amazing He is. And we we would say along with the psalmist something like this, In Psalm 99.3, let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. How does God bring us to this? How does it come that I go from living life kind of in my own little box, in my own little bubble, my own little house, my little sphere of influence, how do we go from that to being opened up to see God Triumphantly, sovereignly, caringly, ordering life from all around the world. The the Lord brings us to this point uh, in in His own way. But I want to take a look at a sampling of it for the people of Israel back in the book of Exodus. Take a look with me, please, at Exodus 14. You'll remember that God was rescuing His people, Israel from the land of Egypt where they were enslaved in bondage. Things were getting worse and worse for them in their enslavement. They cried out to the Lord. God heard their prayer. He remembered them. He knew them. He cared about them. And He sent a deliverer. And He was going to deliver them under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. But it was really God obviously doing that deliverance. And then the ten plagues that God used to release His people from the land of Egypt. And they finally are free from the land of Egypt. And as they come to the Red Sea, they had nowhere to go. And the Egyptian armies had come from behind them because Pharaoh changed his mind. I don't know how that happened. Something divine was going on. So the people of Israel were trapped with the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptians behind them. And you can imagine that they were afraid. And God did something amazing like He always does. And He used Moses as a figure as He lifted His staff up. The, seas, uh, the, 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 the waters of the Red Sea parted the water, I mean, the, the the ground was immediately dried. There's a miracle in and of itself. They walked across on dry ground. They get part way through. The Egyptian armies are behind them. They're still not so confident. They get to the other side. The Egyptian army is in the middle of this. God lets it go. The Egyptian armies are washed away. Look at the accounting of the conclusion to that in verse 30 of Exodus 14. Exodus 14 and verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. The people saw the power of God and his deliverance. They saw, and the result was that they believed. Their eyes were unveiled to see how great God is, how powerful God is, how capable God is, how much of a provider God is, and their hearts were led to believe him to be a true and living God. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my what? salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. They saw the power of God. They believed and they praised God from with their lips. They said, this is my God. I see His handiwork. I see what He has done. This is seeing beyond the sun. This is seeing beyond my circumstances. This is seeing beyond the frustrations, anxieties, fears, disappointments, struggles of life, and seeing there's a God who's bigger. There's a God who's greater. There's a God who's better than all of this. But you know, before this even took place, before they got on the other side of the Red Sea, and before God had taken the Egyptians out of the way, God told them through Moses to chill out. Look at chapter 14 again, and look at verses 12 through 14. They're in their panic, which I think all of us would have been because we hadn't seen the Red Sea parted before and we hadn't seen the Egyptian armies taken out before. So if we were with them in that crowd, these same questions would have been rolling around in our minds. Verse 12 of Exodus 14 Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Are they afraid? Yes. What does Moses, through God's leading, say to them? And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you. When? Today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be what? Shh. People love it when you shush them. Shh. All this fear and anxiety. Who led you out? Who took you out of there? Did you see his power? Did you see his provision? Did he take care of you? This is, this is about to be over. Stand still and see. See what? The salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you, Has He stopped fighting for His people? Is He going to stop fighting for His people? Can we stand still and see the salvation of the Lord? We have only to be shh, silent. We all have problems. We all have struggles. We all have fears and anxieties. God has introduced himself to us. Because we've seen and tasted of his goodness and his grace, we can stand still and see. We see him as a good, faithful, sovereign God. And we can place our lives in his wonderful Hands. This means your money. You can trust him. You can trust him with inflation. You can trust him when the unexpected bills come in. You can trust him through the storms of those things. You can trust him with your marriage. You can trust him with your children, with your job with your health. Remember what God asked Abraham? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Was that Abraham or Sarah? I can't remember. One of them. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, we know the answer to that. He's almighty. There's nothing too hard for him. Some look at God as scary. Mm -hmm. Unapproachable. One who would enslave us when everything in the scriptures point us to the fact that he is a liberating God, one who, who doesn't need to be we don't need to be petrified before as we approach him. listen to these words we 're in, we're in Exodus already. take a look at exodus thirty four God introduces himself to Moses because Moses said, "I want to see you, I want to see you so God passed before him and he saw his um, backsides. I don't know what that means. Since he doesn't have a body. He saw something. And as he passed by, God proclaimed something about himself. And this proclamation that God makes to Moses about himself is reiterated many, many times throughout Scripture. Little pieces of it over and over are repeated. Says in verse 6 of Exodus 34 the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There's how he covered it from three different angles. He forgives all varieties of sin. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When God tells Moses who he is, he leads with a series of descriptors of himself that no one would say, I should run from that. I should run from Him. God introduces Himself as a safe refuge for those that would draw near to Him. The psalmist agrees in Psalm 46.1, our God is a refuge and a strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Does that sound like a God of whom we should be afraid? No, this is one we can cling to. So much so that later on in that same psalm, he says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. See the the call that God is making, and it goes on and on throughout Scripture. In Psalm 86 and verse 5, the Bible says this For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to whom? To all who call upon you. You're abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. This is what God how he introduces Himself. Come to me, come to me, I'm safe. And Jesus says the same thing in John 6 and verse 37. All that the Father gives Me will come to Me. Will you read the rest of it with Me? And whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. Come to Me. Jesus beckons us to come in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28 where He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for My yoke is easy and My burden is light. This goes on and on through Scripture. The author of Hebrews on numerous occasions warned his readers not to miss God's salvation, not to miss God's rest, Not to miss the safety and security that are offered through Jesus Christ. But He also says, I'm persuaded better things of you. Things that relate to your salvation. He says, you're not those that shrink back and are destroyed, but those who persevere to the saving of your soul. The Bible proclaims that drawing near to God is the way of salvation. Drawing near to God is the way of rest. Drawing near to God is the way of security. Drawing near to God is the way of experiencing God's good promises. He has all of this laid out for us. Solomon found out that all of the avenues he sought after produced fears. They were all, in one way or another, gods, little gods that provided only temporary benefits and often produced frustration and sometimes fears. But there is a true and enduring God. And when we come to trust Him, He breaks down the fears of these lesser gods. So we've got all these fears in life. But God says, let me deal with your fears by calling you to come underneath my loving, powerful protection. From fears in multitude to fear of one. All these multitudes of gods, they all have different requirements. They're always pulling, pulling, pulling. I need more from you. I need more from you. And you'll get something, you'll get something from me when, I, when you cater to me. You'll get something. But it won't last. You'll have to keep on coming for more and more and more. And it'll leave you lacking. God says, come to me. Fear me. And I'll provide for you rest and safety and security. Jesus came to provide life abundantly. He lived a perfect life in our place. He died to provide forgiveness for us. And He was raised for our justification. When we see and believe our God, here's a list of things just to kind of consider as we come to a conclusion of this. When we see and believe our God, He gives us wisdom that lasts. He gives us works that stand the test of time. Let's stop there for a second. Whose works? <laughs> Those are the ones that can cannot be impugned. When God says, I will give you my righteousness through Christ, He's telling you, He's giving you a righteousness that can't be judged to be falling short. So when we come and see and believe God, He gives us works that stand the test of time that no one can critique and uh, be found correct. He gives us relationships that will never be broken. A relationship that will never be broken. A relationship with Him. He says, one day, I'll wipe away all the tears from your eyes. I'll take away all the pain, all the burden, all the sorrow. I will be with my people. They will be my people. And I will be what? Whom? Their God. An eternal relationship. He gives us eternal life. All the mortality you see in the book of Ecclesiastes, well, um, everyone dies. That's kind of one of the expressions that we we realize from the book of Ecclesiastes. Everyone dies. Yeah, but God offers us life that can't be taken. When we come to see and believe God, He gives us eternal significance. What is that eternal significance? him i find in him everything that i need all these fears and frustrations are squashed in light of him well while we still have a remnant of some of these fears that are common to man these fears cannot ultimately win because god's love casts out fear god tells us that perfect love perfect love casts out fear we don't have time to look at the passage that i had planned here in first john 4 but you can take a look at it later Perfect love casts out fear. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that that refers to your love? Do you have perfect love? That would be not very helpful if your perfect love is what was needed to cast out fear. Because your love is not perfect, right? Comes up short. But his love is perfect. His love is perfect. He provides that love when He gives us His Spirit. He shed His love abroad in our hearts with the Spirit whom He has given to us. That perfect love that He gives us casts out fear. So there's no fear of judgment. Why? Because I know who is in control of all these things. It's God's love reigning in us.